Listen up, all you New York fans. Veteran New York sports talk host John Dostromsky gives his unique take on all the big stories in the Big Apple and beyond, including guest conversations, gambling picks, and reactions from you, the listener. Check out New York, New York with John Dostromsky on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And one of my oldest friends, Babu Frick. Is that me? Hello? This is Ben. You didn't do it. You didn't do the hey, hey. <laughs> I was not prepared. Well, you should have been because it was Star Wars night on ESPN's Yankees Astros broadcast the other night. And you know, I sort of roll my eyes at this uh, entire enterprise because it's just two Disney media companies doing cross promotion. But baseball and Star Wars coming together, I feel like if the three of us don't talk about that, then then we've really missed an opportunity. Yeah, it's funny. Star Wars nights are a staple at the ballpark, particularly in the minor leagues. And in those cases, you get an opportunity for people to dress up and it's just a fun cosplay night. The broadcasts I'm less into, and <laughs> partly it's just the, the cynicism of the corporate synergy, but also I think it's just kind of tough to implement in a way that really makes use of the license. You know, like it was kind of not as heavy handed as it could have been, which I guess is good, but it also felt kind of tacked on. It's like, let's put Tim Kirchin in a Yoda costume, which I'm in Come favor on, that of. That was funny. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> fine with that, although it seemed like he couldn't breathe after a certain point <laughs> and he had to take it off. But <laughs> other than that, I think there are only so many ways that you can actually integrate it and it's just kind of like why are these things going together again other than the fact that <laughs> these corporations are owned by disney i am very much in favor of star wars in all forms but this is not one of my favorite forms so i, I can't say i hope it catches on it's taking you guys weirdly long to acknowledge the fact that zach cram is doing this podcast in full yoda uniform and makeup as well that's not <laughs> unusual though that happens every week <laughs> i felt bad for Eduardo, because the other Star Wars characters being being portrayed on this broadcast were Luke Skywalker and Yoda and Darth Vader and uh, Baby Yoda, the some of the most iconic characters in the lore. And then Eduardo was just a nameless Jawa. And like, yeah, I wish he had done the Jawa gibberish voice for nine innings, but I don't think that was going to happen. And then he was just a nameless character. You couldn't have made him like Han Solo or anyone from the new trilogy, although maybe you want to forget about the new trilogy. I don't know. I just felt bad for his being left out of these iconic characters. I don't know. I don't know who made that decision. I think that that's a, a pretty funny choice. And so if that was Eduardo's decision, then then I definitely support him. Although you're right, not doing the, the Jawa chittering is one of many jokes that they really left on the table. A lot of missed opportunities, as much as I liked t uh, Tim Kirchin's list of greatest force plays of all time. Uh, you know, there was tons of of 
hatred at the ballpark. No mention of let the hate flow through you as Yankees fans are are spewing invective at uh, at the Astros who are visiting New York for the first or New York with fans for the first time uh, since the trash can New York incident. for the first time because there yeah, was no interdivision play. Yeah. Yeah. No mention of the famous Red Sox blog, Sons of Core and Horn uh, for you extended universe stands. Ben, I, I can hear you chuckling at that. Yes. I would have liked to see lightsabers superimposed on the bats. Like give me some CGI. I like looking at lightsabers. The NBA Marvel broadcast had all sorts of graphics and maybe it was kind of intrusive and they thought stodgy baseball fans wouldn't stand for such a thing. But like, if you're going to give me a Star Wars broadcast, like let's see some special effects. That's what Star Wars is about. They did. uh, MLB did tweet out a picture of Yankee Stadium comparing it to Tatooine, which uh, famously does not have much grass. So that was fairly amusing. Very prosperous harvest season for the moisture farmers in New York City this year. So I think that's just an artifact of of unusual environmental effects. You know, I I agree, Ben, that it's sort of cynical, but it seemed like everybody was having fun. And this is a baseball is a long season. And one thing I like about it is that there's so much that you can't take it that seriously all the time. So the experience itself, as much as I sort of thumb my nose at the, at the concept beforehand, I found myself enjoying that broadcast. Uh, Zach, what do you make of the, the surroundings? The fans themselves didn't seem to be dressed up for star Wars at all. They were there for a completely different, Uh, holiday yeah i have found some of the discourse around the booing a little odd because even if the sign stealing revelation happened more than a year ago at this point the fans haven't had any opportunity to voice their displeasure and remember when the punishments came out or the lack of punishments came out for the players involved I believe Rod Manfred explicitly stated that the booing was going to be part of the punishment. So to now, uh, for the folks now saying like, oh, shouldn't we move past this at this point? There aren't many Astros left from that 2017 team that cheated. Like, maybe so, but Yankees fans lost to the Astros in two ALCSs, and they are very upset, and they haven't had an opportunity to voice that displeasure yet. They should be able to, every fan base should be able to this year without being scolded for for doing so and i think like i would have been curious to see what would have happened with a packed house obviously yankee stadium is still just at a fraction of what its normal capacity is but it still felt really loud and listening to the quotes from players and coaches involved they said it was really loud and i would have been kind of curious to hear it with fifty thousand fans it probably would have been like a playoff atmosphere and i don't know why anyone would be upset about injecting a playoff atmosphere into a May ball game. We were so excited about a playoff atmosphere with Dodgers Padres in April because you don't usually see that in springtime. Yeah, I think it leads to some sort of strange situations when it comes to who you're cheering for and who you're booing. Like if you're, you know, cheering for Domingo Herman because he's wearing the pinstripes and you're booing Zach Granke because he's on the Astros, even though he wasn't on the sign stealing team, like that's kind of weird. But in general, I'm totally fine with everyone just venting their spleens at the Astros. Like they got off easy last year. I mean, to the extent that anyone did in 2020, they got a year with empty bars ballparks where they didn't have to have everyone hating him. And that was a year for these grievances to fester. And so now is the time when they have to take their lumps. And, you know, a lot of the members of this team were not on the cheating teams. And so I'm sort of sorry for them that they are just tarnished by association seemingly forever. Like, at what point do we stop booing the Astros? Is it when every single sign stealer is off this roster? But I think we're too early to really say, okay, it's time to move on, which is sort of what the Astros organization and players have kind of been saying almost since the start. You know, it it seems like they want to control when everyone else is uh, allowed to sort of stop booing them or, or is supposed to stop booing them. And really, they're not entitled to decide that. 
they have to just show up and take it. <laughs> so I think that, you know, as long as the, the taunts and the heckles are like within bounds, like I'm not in the ballpark and I don't know exactly what every single person is saying and what these players are hearing. And there are certain things that might take it too far. But if we're just keeping it to baseball and to booing and to people shouting, you don't deserve your accolades at Alex Bregman, <laughs> which is, I think, kind of funny and creative, then it's all in good fun. And I think they deserve it. And they can respond by playing well and quieting the fans, as Jose that, Altuve did. We're recording uh, yeah. on Thursday afternoon, not like half an hour after Altuve hit a game-winning three-run homer against these booing fans. Like... I'm sure the Yankees fans weren't happy to have their boos returned in that respect, but that's kind of how this dynamic is supposed to work across sports. Going back to like Reggie Miller versus Spike Lee in the garden in the nineties, there have been documentaries made about that because it was such a fun dynamic. Yeah. That whole, that whole game during the star Wars broadcast, I was thinking, you know, this booing is fun. It will be a lot more fun if the Astros were winning. Uh, but yeah, I think, Ben, your point about as long as it stays in bounds, it's it's fine. Like, we want this kind of intensity. Like, yeah. I think a lot of the – I'm a little sympathetic to, to the Astros' partisan response that there were a lot of teams doing stuff like this and the Astros have been singled, singled out by, by the league. But also, I don't care that much because – they were the worst and they got caught in tough shit. You know, that's <laughs> that's just sort of how it goes. Like it's it's a little rich to say, yeah, we got caught doing this, but it's not fair that that we're getting in trouble for it. You know, this is the 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 punishment, as Zach said, you know, that was the that the idea that there's a limit to how much the league can actually punish this and the fans are gonna get their pound of flesh and I think some of the individual expressions of anger, both on Astros partisans, on the part of Astros partisans who want this to go away, and some of the Dodgers or Yankees fans that seem to be still mad about this, some of the individual expressions seem a little silly, but also I'm not going to begrudge people uh, expressing anger in there in whatever way they choose, as long as, like Ben said, it doesn't cross certain lines. So, and what we saw the other night. Like if people stayed this mad, this is a a rivalry between two huge market teams, two of the best teams in the American League for the past five years who have already played a couple really, really awesome playoff series uh, and will probably face each other again in the future. I'm totally down for this getting weird and petty. Like I'm a college football fan. That's what all that's what all this is about. Ben, college football is <laughs> is a game played by men in pads that's very popular on some uh college campuses in the in the south and out west. Mm-hmm. Um just so you can follow along with that. Uh but if if baseball gets a little bit more weird and petty, I'm all for that. So I I think there's nothing wrong with with showing up in the grouch costume or inflating the the trash cans to to bang in the stands. And, you know, I hope when, when the Astros go back or when the Yankees go back to Houston, that, that they get it from the fans down there. Yeah. I think the weirdness is a part of the appeal, honestly, from an outside perspective, just watching on TV because of the method of cheating, it's led to Oscar, the grouch costumes and inflatable trash cans being blown up. And I think that silliness is, is a good part of this. It's not, just like another kind of cheating that would involve like needles. If someone had taken steroids, for instance, this is a novel way of protesting. And I think that's fun for, for a controversy we have seen before, but not in this particular fashion. That's why I was so good at the time too. Cause there's like the, the PED hysteria, moral panic was just so fraught with other stuff that this was just so bizarre, so absurd and I'm glad to see that the discourse around it continues in kind. And the cheating itself was out in the open. Even if we weren't aware of it at the time, once the report surfaced, you could go back and watch those games and listen to those games. And it was clear as day. You could hear the banging. And so that was, I think, part of what made that story blow up to the extent that it did, because it wasn't just some behind the scenes report and you hear it secondhand or something like you could just go back and watch it and it was in your ears. So I think that led to a lot of the acrimony and also made it such a sensational story. And so I think it's appropriate 
that the public is participating in the shaming of the Astros too, or at least the taunting and trolling of the Astros. Because from the start, really, it was kind of like this public exercise where it was like, oh, let's all go back and see what the bangs were and how this worked. And so now I think it's only fair, only natural that the fans would be involved in a a similarly audible response to the sign stealing. All right. So as Zach mentioned, we're recording on Thursday afternoon. Uh, and just before we turned on the microphones, there was huge news breaking. The Los Angeles Angels, uh, the Los Angeles Shohei Otanis, have <laughs> have released their, for a long time, the biggest name on the team, Albert Pujols. After 10 years on the, uh, on the Angels, one of the greatest players of this or any generation uh, is now off the Angels. And it's, He's he's been a sub replacement level player for so long that it's hard to disagree with this from a baseball perspective. But the timing seems seems a little strange. I can't remember a transaction that simultaneously seemed so obvious and so surprising because people have been saying that the Angels should stop playing Pujols for half a decade, if not longer. And They've kept playing him and giving him 600 at-bats and 600 at-bats. And last year, even in a shortened season, he got 163 plate appearances. And this year, he's already played 24 games. So even as he was hitting the sub-Mendoza line this year, he still kept playing. And I think I'm curious to hear what reporting, if any, reveals about why now, why they chose now. Obviously, they can have a better use for their lineup spot as they struggle to to stay above water in a in a very winnable NL West division. They can either add a first baseman or move Jared Walsh to first uh, with Otani DHing and call up one of their outfield prospects. So I think this opens up a lot of flexible possibilities for their lineup. But you could have said the same thing a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, and it never quite happened before now. Yeah, you mentioned it like it was in the the very last thing I wrote about potential Chris Bryant trade destinations. I said you can fit him in this lineup, but you have to bench pools to do it. And they've done more than bench him. They've released him. Yeah, I mean, this is what his uh, fifth consecutive season being a sub-replacement level player. He hasn't been an above-average player since 2014, I guess. You have to go way back. So as Zach said, like it's not really a surprise in that we were talking about this years ago. I mean, I can remember having conversations about this fairly early in Pujols' tenure with the Angels. Like, how long is he going to last? Like, what year are they just going to decide this is a sunk cost and release him? And so... It is semi-surprising that he lasted this long. It's also sort of surprising that having lasted this long, they didn't just say, okay, we'll let him have the last few months here, just in recognition of you know his tenure with the team and all he's accomplished in the game and maybe his standing in the clubhouse, et cetera. But I do think when you look at how the Angels have been struggling lately, you know, Albert Pujols is not that team's only problem and he hasn't been that team's only problem over the past several years of of not making the playoffs but it is pretty glaring these days because you know he's just not a good hitter anymore he is not a good fielder anymore he steals the odd base every now and then which is fun but given the angels defensive issues this year they have the worst defensive efficiency of any team in the majors and starting albert pujols at first base where he once was very good That's not going to help. And I think when you have Jared Walsh, who's hitting as well as he is, and he's playing in the outfield partly to make room for Pujols, you have Otani DHing. I know they're light in the outfield as it is with Dexter Fowler out for the year and Joe Adele not being ready when they hoped he'd be ready. So it's not as if there has been a great replacement waiting in the wings. But again, like we're saying, sub-replacement level players. So in theory, you could call someone up from AAA and he might be more productive than Albert Pujols. So I know that people might be a bit upset that they didn't just sort of have him let him have the the retirement tour and the farewell tour, but really that's what he's been having for the last few years, frankly. And the contract is probably the only reason why he has had the roster spot this long. And, you know, it entitles him to a salary, but not necessarily a roster spot. And and you can't say that they weren't patient with him. <laughs> they waited to see if he could get some of his old skills back and they just did not return. The first time, like, this has been going on long enough. I think I've written like five or six 
career retrospectives for Pujols <laughs> at this point as he's passed certain milestones or or you know, it's a it's a shame that that fans who are just getting into the game now will only remember him as a contract instead of like the historical bridge from Barry Bonds to Mike Trout. Uh, and it's been going on so long of the first like I'm linking back to each of the previous retrospectives every time I write about it. And the first one of those was at Grantland. That's how long ago he's been semi on the outs with the with the Angels. But I do want to go back to looking back because I I think it bears repeating how good a player he was in his in his 20s in St. Louis in the, the early years in Los Angeles. So I'm sure, Zach, you've got some. List of stats. We didn't talk about this beforehand. I'm just assuming that you've got numbers to throw at us. That's a fair assumption because I have a stat head uh, search pulled up right here. I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is the line that you make the Hall of Fame in your 30s. That for the vast majority of Hall of Famers, they need to sustain their performance late into their career to uh, accumulate the sorts of counting stats you need to make the Hall. We talked about this with Jacob deGrom. Uh, just last week, and he's an extreme example, but that goes for most Hall of Famers. Albert Pujols is the rare Hall of Famer who was so good that he never needed to play in his 30s, and he was still Hall-worthy. So I have a list here of just the position players with the most war uh, through their 20s. And remember, Pujols started at the age of 21 as a rookie. Everyone else at the top of this list started in their teens or at age 20 at the latest, except for Pujols. Here are the only players with more war through their 20s. Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, Mickey Mantle, Alex Rodriguez, Mike Trout, who's still going, Mel Ott, Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron. And Albert Pujols is ninth behind eight guys who we would probably say are among the 12 to 15 best players of all time. And Pujols through his 20s was with that group. He is third all time in MVP shares. If you look at the number of times that he won the award and came up second to guys like uh, Barry Bonds, and I think he what came in second to Joey Votto in 2010 and uh, Ryan Howard in 2006. And he won three MVPs of his own. So if you add up all of his top finishes, he is third all time in fractions of an MVP award behind only Bonds and Stan Musial. So it's really hard to pick out a stat where Pujols just does not blow you away with how good he was in his 20s. And as Mike says, that's kind of sad for for the younger generations because Pujols was basically the best hitter when I was growing up first learning about baseball around 2000, 2001 was when I started paying attention and that's when Pujols came up. So for the first decade that I was closely following baseball, he was just the best hitter year in year out, uh, you know, Barry Bonds aside. It's funny. I had a stat head search up too, except mine was very slightly different. I went through his age 30 season, which was his last truly great year in 2010 with the Cardinals. And if you do it that way through age 30, Albert Pujols had the sixth highest war ever among position players, again, behind Cobb, Mantle, Hornsby, Rodriguez, Ott, and maybe, I guess, Trout by the end of the season. And I think, you know, it's even more glaring when you look at how he ranks after that age. So, you know, he's sixth all time through age 30. And then after age 30, he is 226th. And, you know, he's tied with Randy Velarde for <laughs> war after age 30. Or if you do it like age 32 and after, that was kind of his last very good year, which I think was actually his first year with the Angels. He's 11th that way through age 32 and then 329th after that he was worth just eight war after that and it's kind of this tough thing when you talk about Pujols because you don't want to dwell on the late stage and the twilight which has lasted a really long time you want to reminisce about his peak and you don't want to just sort of dunk on him for for being bad at the end of his career here but it is actually part of his legacy i think it's not a part that tarnishes his earlier accomplishments or should keep him out of the hall of fame or anything but it is almost like equally historic if not more so that he was so great and then also so not great for so long i mean thousands and thousands of plate appearances after having such a, a high level and there was actually a, a bill james 
fun fact or unfun fact, depending on how you look at it, that I thought kind of got at this in an interesting way. And this was in March that James came up with this. And he noted that Pujols at one point in his career was 180 hits above a 300 career batting average. So, you know, he had 180 more hits at that point than he would have needed to have the 300 career average. I think that was at the end of 2010. And not only did he end up with a career average below 300, but no other hitter was even half that far above 300 at any point in his career and then finished under 300. So it's like no one has really come close to being at the level that he was and then fallen so far from that level for such a sustained period where, you know, by the time that he's eligible for the Hall of Fame, you know, several years from now, I mean, you're going to have to go way back, right? You'll be talking about like it will have been 15 plus years since Pujols was a Hall of Fame caliber player. And so it's just strange, I think, that as we're saying, there will be a whole generation that remembers Albert Pujols well but doesn't remember him for doing the things that he did so well, not just being one of the best hitters of all time, but being a great all-around player, a great defensive first baseman, a good base runner without ever being a burner, good base stealer. Like he kind of did everything well and had those instincts. And I don't know what happened. Like it's still mysterious to me, I guess, how he fell off so suddenly because, you know, People like speculate about his age and there's that whole controversy about that, but it almost doesn't matter what his actual age is because no matter how old he was when he declined, like it was so steep and sudden. It's just not the gradual decline that you expect to see. It's like he lost his plate discipline all of a sudden and it just never really came back. And I haven't quite figured out how that happened. One uh, quick note to add to that lengthy list of accomplishments is Pujols was an incredible postseason performer which we haven't seen recently because of course he has played for the angels and we have talked at length about how the angels have not made the playoffs recently but albert pools for his career in 77 playoff games had a 1.030 playoff ops he hit 323 431 599 against theoretically the highest caliber pitching and it wasn't just you know a lot of singles and doubles in early rounds he had moments he had the home run off brad lidge that will play on october highlight videos forever he had the three home run game in 2011 which is one of the most memorable world series of my lifetime so he wasn't just performing in the regular season in st louis he was playing for world series winners and performing really well in the playoffs and in the brightest moments and hitting home runs that i think i will remember for the rest of my baseball fandom That line, that career postseason line you just mentioned, the 1,030 OPS, that is really impressive. It's also like identical to just his career (laughs) line with the Cardinals. Like that's how good he was. I mean, I know it's still impressive to have your your career regular season line basically in the postseason with, you know, colder weather and better pitching and everything. But his career OPS with the Cardinals was 1,037 and that's over 11 seasons. So, yeah, he was really, really good for a long time. The thing that I think is going to get lost statistically is when he came. So he with the Cardinals over 11 seasons, he finished in the top 10 in MVP voting every single year uh, and finished first three times, second four times. But his rookie year, he struck out 93 times and walked 69 times. And every single year for the next 10 years, he walked more than he struck out. And he was obviously a great contact hitter, obviously a great on base guy, but the thing that you remember about pools is the power, whether it's the specific home run against Lidge, but with the Cardinals, he had a 600 slugging percentage. He had more than 900 extra base hits. He averaged 40 home runs and 40 doubles every single year. And with all of that, like the, the Joe DiMaggio stat about how he hit more home runs and he had strikeouts in the thirties and forties against this was before the strikeout had been invented. And Pujols <laughs> did this against early two thousands pitching, uh, walked with the Cardinals uh, 271 times more than he struck out. And that, for a power hitter, even back then, was just absolutely astonishing. And a measure of, you know, I called him the bridge from Bonds to Trout, but he was that level of of uncanny consistency of just, and he just swallowed an entire generation of really good National League first basemen, whether that's that's Prince Fielder or, or Howard, or the young Joey Votto, 
Like he just made everybody else look like they were playing a completely different sport when he was with St. Louis. And that's one thing that, you know, I'd made this comparison the first time I wrote about him that there's a little, he obviously wasn't as charismatic a character or as good an all around player as Ken Griffey Jr. But there's something like that where if you weren't around for the first decade and all you saw is the second decade, you really had to, the, the numbers are incredible, but they don't really capture how dominant, how special a player he was. And for, and he was on display for, 10 years as a really you know, deteriorating uh, form of what he once was. It, it, uh, I, I feel like it's a fail. It's my failure as a writer to say you had to see it, to believe it, but I think it's, it's kind of true. It's kind of depressing to think that if Griffey was that figure for the nineties generation and Pujols for the aughts, then who will be the star of the 2010s who completely collapses in the 2020s. And we have to, tell all all the newer kids uh, you had to be there yeah i just i don't think anyone collapsed quite like pools or like was in that second incarnation of his career for quite as long i mean griffey is a pretty good comp i guess but even so Pujols, i think it's no yeah. it's it's really not so like you can look ahead and say you know so and so who's great today might have a decline phase that lasts for a while but i don't think we're going to see many comps to pools and you know, he's not officially retired. We're talking about him and his career in the past tense here. Uh, I don't know that Albert Pujols has accepted that. Do you guys think there's any chance that he catches on somewhere? Like, do the Cardinals give him a farewell at bat or something? Or, you know, someone who is not in a race just figures, uh, let's let him chase a couple milestones with us down the stretch? I wouldn't mind seeing him get like one last weekend series with the Cardinals at some point Mm -hmm. or when I wrote about his his potential to chase like 700 home runs I thought it was possible that he could hang around for another year for a team like the Marlins that wanted to sell tickets uh and get a couple home runs that way I think 700's probably (laughs) yeah Yeah. that that's probably out of the picture at this point uh but if he wants to play then then sure, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some team that, that would give him give him at least a few at bats. The thing that almost immediately after the the news of the release, there started to be speculation about him reuniting with TLR on the White Sox, <laughs> which you know I love TLR discourse and White Sox weirdness discourse as much as the next guy, but I don't think I can handle that. I don't know if if you guys are, are have a little stronger constitution than I do. I support uh, the Cardinals theory in part because I think the two other recent r- retirements of legends of Pujols' stature are Alex Rodriguez and Ichiro. And when Arod was released from his fr- from the remainder of his big Yankees contract, he retired simultaneously, which Pujols notably did not do. Ichiro, conversely, came back and had that. Uh, returned for, what, two games with the Mariners, which delayed his Hall of Fame induction year by a year. But I think if we can get something similar for Pujols, that was a really emotional moment for Ichiro in part because it took place in Japan. But for Pujols, it would also be kind of a similar returning to where he first emerged as uh, as an MVP. And I think it would be really fun if the Cardinals get a 40-man spot open at some point and can bring him back for a weekend series maybe later this year when there are more fans in the stands to to pay their respects to an all-time great. We've been... Yeah, I think everybody's said some version of this, but as much as we've been saying goodbye to Albert Pujols for about five or six years now, it hasn't seemed immediate. And so this this is just abrupt. We didn't get the last chance for him to get that one last standing ovation. I'm not... Not saying that he necessarily wants or needs that full year like Chipper Jones or or Derek Jeter retirement tour, but I think it would be nice to have one last chance to to really send him off properly. Cause this is as much as as A-Rod is a comp as a as a player, the circumstances of his retirement could not be more different. Uh so I I'm but I remain astonished that, that the Angels decided that this was the time to to cut their losses. Uh, is that is that personal services contract for ten years still in effect? Do we know what that <laughs> entails now that they've uh, burned this bridge? So the last, yeah, I guess that could get awkward if he's if he's mad about getting released. Uh, 
the my understanding of it is, is it would not preclude him from signing with another team. So I don't know, uh, but I don't know what the the implications of that are for for the ten years after his retirement. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores see app for full terms. All rights reserved. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, the other big news in baseball this week is John Means threw a no-hitter, became the third pitcher this season to just narrowly miss a perfect game as one runner reached on a drop third strike in the third inning which uh, got us talking around the office. This is actually, we're stealing Roger Sherman's idea. Uh, He mooted this last night on Slack that there are are a lot of situations in baseball where where a pitcher loses a perfect game in really bizarre circumstances. So we're going to go back to one of the old reliable uh, podcast formats that we've used uh, off and on here and do a draft of near-perfect games lost in weird circumstances. Uh, so I've gone first the last couple times we've done a draft, so we're going to reverse that order. And Ben, you get first pick. All right. Well, I think there's really only one fitting first pick for this draft. It has to be Harvey Haddocks, right? He is the first name who comes to mind when you think of near no-hitters or, in his case, a near-perfect games or you know was a perfect game for a while and is no longer after the 1991 rule change. You know, he just... Took a perfect game into the 13th for the Pirates in 1959 against the Milwaukee Braves. He faced, I mean, he he was perfect for really longer than anyone else has been perfect, right? I mean, he retired 36 consecutive batters, and then he lost the perfect game in the 13th inning and ended up losing the game in a tragic twist. But he was so dominant that day and so good for so long. And there are so many stories about that game. It's just like, it's one of those things where you mention the name and it immediately conjures a game more so than possibly any other name in baseball history. And there are a couple things that I particularly like about that game. It came out like 30 years later, the Braves revealed that they were stealing signs that day. So yes, children, the Astros did not, in fact, invent the practice of sign stealing 
the Braves that day were using uh, binoculars in the bullpen and like positioning towels on, I think, the bullpen fence, depending on whether Haddix was throwing a fastball or a breaking ball. Obviously, it did not help them very much. And you think <laughs> it would because uh, reportedly he was only throwing two pitches that day. He had a fastball and a slider. And you'd think knowing whether it's the fastball or the breaking ball would help. But evidently, he was just so good that day. You know, he said he could hit his spot perfectly. And so I guess the command was so good that even knowing what was coming may not have been enough to help the Braves. And also, I think it uh, is kind of a sign of the times and the era that part of the tradition that day was that he smoked a cigarette in between every inning. So that was what peak performance looked like in 1959. (laughs) I think that's a great choice for first overall. However, it was not number one on my board. And with the number two pick in this draft, I am going to take Ernie Shore. Ernie Shore threw what Sabre calls one of the three uh, most memorable games of the dead ball era. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's certainly I wasn't around. I wouldn't know. Neither were most <laughs> of the, like, there were some old guys at Sabre, but they, how would they know what's most memorable about the, the dead well, ball? Well, because it's the only things we remember having not been there. Ernie Shore entered a game in 1917 after one batter because Boston's starting pitcher was Babe Ruth, who walked the first hitter and disagreeing with the umpire's ball calls proceeded to punch him uh, which is just what happened in the dead ball era so Ruth was ejected for punching the umpire and Ernie Shore entered the game for what was supposed to be just a quick relief appearance and then the batter who had walked was caught stealing and Shore proceeded to not leave the game the rest of the time he retired the next 26 hitters and for a while was credited with a perfect game because he had thrown to 26 hitters, retired all of them, and the one batter he did not face had also been retired uh, by being caught stealing. This was subsequently overturned. It no longer counts as a perfect game. It is just a combined no-hitter, which is so funny to me because Ruth and Shore both get credit for this game, even though all Ruth did was walk a batter and punch the umpire and then probably like go bet at the, the horse track or something. And... Ernie Shore uh, is basically only remembered for this game in his career, even though he had a very good career. He pitched well in the World Series. And I think one of the other notable things about Shore came later in his career. He was traded to the Yankees just before Babe Ruth was. And uh, here I'm going to read from Sabre's bio of Ernie Shore about Ernie Shore's uh, contribution in 1920. Quote, In an exhibition game with the Dodgers, Ruth went into the stands after a heckler who had called him a piece of cheese. The man pulled a knife whose length and lethality varied in the telling. But the Brooklyn Eagle reported there was no bloodshed. Pitcher Ernie Shore of the Yankees, who was close by in his street clothes, stepped between as peacemaker. So Ernie Shore threw this uh, near-perfect game, which is fantastic and the reason I bring him up. But I just want to ponder for a moment the potential (laughs) ripple effects, butterfly effects in baseball history if Ernie Shore had not stepped in to stop Babe Ruth from being knifed by a man who had called him a piece of cheese, which I'm having trouble to get out without laughing. I believe uh, our friend Sam Miller has called this his favorite baseball tidbit ever. Uh, Just like, I don't know, Babe Ruth changed baseball and this was right on the precipice in 1920. He was on the cusp of changing baseball. What if he had been knifed and Ernie Shore hadn't stepped in? What is Ernie Shore like? Is Ernie Shore a real person or has he just been like somebody who's been quantum leaped back to clean up after Babe Ruth? (laughs) I mean, he was uh, Babe Ruth's roommate for a while, reportedly. And according to his Sabre bio, he uh, requested a different roommate after Babe Ruth had borrowed his toothbrush without asking. Uh, He later clarified that it might have actually been his shaving brush, but it made a better story the other way. Uh, So then Ernie Shore left. Uh, Babe Ruth's apartment and became a roommate uh, with the mayor of Boston, John F. Kennedy's grandfather. So he might really just be like a uh, a Forrest Gump type, you know, tottering throughout history, just encountering Babe Ruth and future presidents along the way. So Ernie Shore, uh, second pick in the draft. Mike, I defer to you. I can't believe we're going to get to that uh, Armando Galarraga is going to get to the second round, but he is because I'm going with with Hooks Wilts, which I know is a favorite story of Zach's uh, on 
July 4th, uh, 1908, Hooks Wiltz, who is second all-time in Major League history uh, in wins among pitchers named Hooks, uh, he threw <laughs> <laughs> he threw a perfect game for the first 26 batters uh, for the for the New York Giants against the Phillies. Uh, the last batter up was Phillies pitcher George McQuillan, who was also throwing the shutout at the time. Uh, Wiltz got up against or got up one two through a curveball that seemed to break over the plate. Home plate umpire Cy Wrigler uh, called it a ball. However, uh, McQuillan was convinced it was a strike and was on his way back to the dugout. But uh, he came back. Wiltz was incensed and uh, accidentally hit McQuillan with the next pitch, sending the game into extra innings. Uh, um, Wiltz retired the Phillies in the in the top of the tenth. The Giants walked it off in the bottom of the tenth, making Wiltz to this day one of three players uh, to throw a ten inning no hitter. But he was one bad umpire's call away from being the only person to throw a 10 inning perfect game. Hooks Wiltz, uh, do you know what his brother's name was? His brother was also a major league pitcher. Crooks. Uh, his brother's name was Snake Wiltz. Snake. <laughs> Apparently, his pitching motion looked like a snake. A better and more on brand joke for you there, Bauman, would have been ladders, hooks and ladders. <laughs> no? Yep. I'm not good. sure. That, that's fine. Yeah, when was that game invented? I don't know that that would have been around at the time, though. Well, it's sh- pretty old. Shoots and ladders is the game. Yeah, Hooks and right. ladders is the fire truck, uh, yes. which reminds right. me of Rube Waddell, who was also <laughs> a bad yeah. old-timey baseball roommate uh, who who had an affinity for fire trucks. I Old-timey nicknames are great. So one of my favorite baseball fun facts is that there are 15 left-handed pitchers in the Hall of Fame, and 20% of them, were called lefty substantially. Uh, another two of them were called Rube. Um, anyway, we can go on to Hall of Fame name stuff all the time, <laughs> but we're going back around to uh, Ben. I believe you're up next. Yeah. Apparently, Snakes and Ladders is actually the original name of the game, Shoots and Ladders. So it is pretty fitting. And <laughs> it's. Uh, Did you been... ride a snake back down the board? Yeah, I think so. Who knew? Anyway, I will gladly take the Galarraga game for my second pick. And I think this is, uh, I mean, this was extremely memorable. This is probably the best case for it actually being better to have the near miss perfect game than to have the perfect game itself. I mean, perfect games, it's an exclusive enough list that it is pretty memorable. It's not like no hitters where there are a lot of pitchers who threw no hitters that no one ever remembers or talks about. If you're in the perfect game club, you know, you do get mentioned from time to time. But really, I think the Galarraga game, June 2nd, 2010, he pitched eight and two thirds perfect innings. And then on the 27th batter, there was an infield hit that should not have been an infield hit. Jason Donald hit a ground ball to first baseman Miguel Cabrera. He tossed it to Galarraga, who was covering first base and was there in plenty of time to get the force. But first base umpire Jim Joyce incorrectly called Davis uh, Donald safe. So that was the end of the perfect game and the no hitter. And Galarraga then got the next batter out to end it. So I think this has worked out okay for both of them. I mean, Joyce felt terrible at the time. Galarraga felt robbed, but they ended up co-writing a book together, right? Nobody's perfect. They kind of became this inspirational story of uh, human fallibility and and accepting our flaws and kind of, you know, made the rounds and, and do speaking engagements and, and such. So I think it has worked out okay for, at least for Galarraga, because he's not the one who messed up. So he is remembered for having pitched a perfect game, basically, but having lost it through no fault of his own. And he gets a lot of fame and a lot of celebrity for that. And I think it turned into a a semi-inspirational story of, you know, interpersonal relationships more so than just a guy having a good baseball game. And also kind of inspired instant replay, I think. So has that maybe we're all the losers in this uh, (laughs) this whole enterprise. Zach, who's who do you have next? Um, There are. I think two good choices for this next spot. I will take Ed Carger, who in August uh, 1907 
Uh, I only care about dead ball baseball today and really any day. Uh, Ed Carger threw seven perfect innings against the Boston Doves. Carger was a member of the St. Louis Cardinals, and this did not count as a perfect game because, as we all learned with the Madison Bumgarner no-hitter a couple weeks ago, uh, not throwing nine innings means it doesn't officially count. However, unlike most other under-nine-inning no-hitters throughout history, this one, like Bumgarner's, actually completed all scheduled innings. This was the second game of a doubleheader, and Boston and St. Louis, which were the two worst teams in the league, both had to catch a train. So they decided, as per league rules at the time, to shorten the second game of the doubleheader to seven innings. So I guess what goes around comes around 100-plus years later, because that is now what we're doing with, with doubleheaders again. And Ed Carter threw seven perfect innings. He struck out two, did not obviously allow any base runners and his team won two to zero Carger himself scored a run. And I think it's forgotten to history. Carger was given credit for a perfect game for a while, but in 1991 when MLB decided that nine innings was the minimum for a no hitter, perfect game that was stripped from him along with a couple dozen others. But Carger's was the only perfect game that was stripped. All the others were no hitters. So I think he's special and he should be remembered for this because uh, he only threw five or six seasons and was not really memorable in any other respect. So my two picks, Ernie Shore and Ed Carger, uh, two excellent dead ball players. Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to pick a dead ball pitcher to wrap up the draft. John Means, who's pitching in the dead ball era of 2021. Um, It was between this and the Pedro Martinez 10 inning expedition. And I was torn between, I think, the losing the no hitter. If it comes later, it's more dramatic because you're aware that the no hitter of the perfect game is going on and has this is the one thing that's going to stand between uh, between this pitcher and history. Uh, But losing a perfect game on a drop third strike is just so baseball. Even if it came in the the third inning, it's just, it's an arcane rule that ever from here all the way back to Mickey Owen has always seemed to be a bad omen whenever it happens. Uh, so I'm going to pick John means who uh, I think deserves our, our heartfelt congratulations. I'm definitely going to stop calling him John main, which has been a problem for me uh, since he debuted up until yesterday. Uh, and uh, I'm going to go so far as to say he's probably the AL Cy Young front front runner, uh, either him or Garrett Cole, which is the kind of thing you can say to make Orioles fans feel good, knowing that everybody's going to forget you said it uh, in a couple months when, when we actually start having this conversation seriously. So what else, any, any other stories that, um, Zach tried to put parameters on this so I wouldn't draft, quote, that you Darvish game, number one. Uh, is, is there anything else that that uh, from the annals of baseball history that, that y'all wanted to, to bring out to, into this conversation? Well, I just think if we had widened it to just pitchers who gave up a hit, one out away from a, a perfect game, that's where w- we would have gone with you Darvish or, or Mike Mussina, and that wasn't really the spirit of the exercise. One person, though, who fits that parameter that I wanted to call out was Yusmero Petit, who once lost a perfect game with two outs in the ninth inning. And Petit also has kind of a secret perfect game. The secret perfect games belong to relievers who retire at least 27 batters in a row. And Petit has the major league record with, I believe, 46 consecutive retired batters uh, back in 2014. So even though Petit doesn't quite fit the spirit of the exercise, I wanted to throw him in at the end here and in the honorable mention section, both to honor his accomplishments and also because Yusmero Petit is one of the favorite players on this podcast, and uh, we should mention him every time we get a chance. Yeah, and I will say that I think that the drop third strike rule is something that we probably should have abandoned around the time when Ed Carger and Ernie Shore were pitching. So I'm kind of curious to see whether we get something like, you know, the Galarraga game, uh, perhaps helping spur along the interest in interest in, in instant replay. I wonder whether we see any discussion of the drop third strike rule as a result of the means almost perfecto. But I should mention for honorable mentions, Pedro Martinez, who had a couple near no-hitter slash perfect games in the mid-1990s. In 1994, he actually, I think in his second start as an expo, he lost a perfect game with one out in the eighth inning when he hit Reggie Sanders with a pitch. And Sanders, evidently yes. not really thinking this through, <laughs> charged the mound 
thinking that it must have been <laughs> intentional that Pedro that would <laughs> would lose the perfect game. I mean, I know Pedro had a reputation for you know being a bit of a, a headhunter at times, or at least pitching inside. But in that context, I'm going to guess that that was not intentional. However, Pedro came even closer the next year, June 1995, when. He had an almost Tadix. He he made it through nine innings. He faced 27 Padres and retired all of them. And then he, I think, allowed the leadoff batter in the 10th inning. The 28th batter he had faced doubled, and that was his last batter. But he made it into extras with the perfect game, which under the pre-1999, pre-1991 rules would have been a perfect game. We could also mention Rich Hill, who just uh, mm-hmm. in 2017 lost a perfect game in the ninth inning and then lost the no-hitter on a walk-off home run in the 10th. So similar-ish to Pedro. Uh, and it's Rich Hill, who is also one of the favored pitchers on this podcast and was also quite recent. So how many how many pitchers are going to throw more than nine innings in a game these days? I also want to single out Jonathan Sanchez, who in 2009 lost a no-hitter on an eighth-inning error, sorry, lost a perfect game on an eighth-inning error by Juan Uribe, uh, a game that was so weird that Pablo Sandoval stole a base in that game, uh, and also deserves notoriety for Jonathan Sanchez going nine innings without walking anybody, which uh, seems, which is a historical feat in and of itself. So... We're running out of time, so it's time to look ahead for Zach. Do you want to take this one again? Uh, very much not. I think that was one time only. Go ahead. Okay, the unnamed weekend preview segment. Zach, who do you have for, for your play or your I did it again? God damn it. <laughs> for your for your series of the weekend. My series of the weekend is the Dodgers versus the now Pujols list Angels. Uh the Dodgers are in quite a swoon as we record this they have lost 13 of their last 17 games uh, basically ever since i wrote a piece uh, noting that they were well on pace to win uh, more than 116 games Uh, but they've been rather strange losses i think five of them have been in extra innings with the runner on second rule Uh, and the dodgers now play the angels who need to keep pace in this muddled al west there aren't really any super exciting pitching matchups in this series, in part because we don't know what the Angels' rotation is going to look like. But we have Kershaw going on Sunday, which is always fun. Uh, maybe he will go up against Mike Trout and Otani. And I can't imagine that any of us will want to miss those at-bats. Yeah, my series, I actually thought about one instead of forgetting to actually pick a series and choosing something from college baseball, which is what I did last week. Uh, the... National broadcast bookers and I seem to agree that the Phillies Braves series is the series to watch this weekend. We get Zach Eflin versus Charlie Morton on Friday. Saturday and Sunday are both on national TV, so both of those should be good games. The Phillies and Braves played some interesting matchups this season. Uh, Maybe watch those uh, Saturday and Sunday games with the radio on or on mute if you can. Uh, Ben, do you have anything to... Yeah. Well, I remember when we were all excited about Padres Dodgers. Well, I am excited about a matchup between the true Titans of the NL West, the Padres and the San Francisco Giants, the first and second place teams in this division, not the lowly third place Dodgers who are playing like the Tigers these days. The Giants, who have a half game lead over San Diego as we speak, will play the Padres this weekend. And I can't quite account for how well the Giants have played to this point. Like they seem to have kind of deserved this record. I don't know that they can continue to play this well. It's been great pitching, great defense, like great resurgences from some hitters who seemed over the hill. And I guess, you know, maybe Buster Posey will not be playing in this series, but it's been a lot of fun to watch his renaissance here. So this has been the the big matchup in the NL West lately. So I assume that the Dodgers will be back on top at some point. But for as long as it lasts, I'm going to enjoy the Padres-Giants rivalry. And also just wanted to mention the AL Central matchup this weekend as well between the Royals and the White Sox, who are tied with Cleveland, actually, atop the AL Central. So what rule will Tony La Russa forget this weekend? We will find out soon. We had this whole bit last year about how everything the Giants did for good or ill was entertaining. Uh, the mm-hmm. chaos Giants and enough. Like, 
the bit's gone too far if the Dodgers are in third place and the the Giants are in first. Uh, but if you're less disturbed by this turn of events than than we are, you should go to the ringer.com. Claire McNear, uh, the ranking Giants fan on staff, has written about uh, San Francisco's return to first place and Buster Posey and Taylor Swift and all the 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 storylines that you may have thought we left behind in 2016, but they're back. Taylor Swift also back. So it all comes together. Two albums this off season. Like, are the Giants going to win two World Series uh, in 2021? Who knows? Who's to yeah, say? The two World Series, they win the World Series and the Dodgers not only fail to win 116 games, but they have a losing record. Probably count as double for Giants fans. Is it close enough to how I was going to make a college World Series joke, but it's not worth it. All right. Leave that, that in, Bobby. Leave leave in <laughs> Bauman Le- deciding to issue a college baseball reference. It doesn't happen that first. often. <laughs> yeah. All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to George Lucas, John Main, and Albert Pujols for Shit, I did it again right after I said I wasn't going to do it. Uh, Thanks to George Lucas, Albert Pujols, and John Means for giving us stuff to talk about. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the weekend's action, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.